Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Town Podcast. I'm Jared Wallace, and I'm joined today by Gary. How do you pronounce your last name, Gary? Helmbold. Helmbold. And Gary is new to Duncan, Arizona area. And tell us a little bit about yourself, Gary. Well, I was born in Dayton, Ohio in 1954, so a long time ago. I grew up there, left home at 18 to go to college in a little town in northern Ohio called Bowling Green. And after a couple years, wasn't sure what I wanted to do and packed up my car and took off. And I traveled around for a few years. What kind of places did you visit? Well, the first place I went to was Wisconsin, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, a small town in northern Wisconsin where my sister lived. And I went there because I knew somebody there. And then from there, I went to Denver, Colorado, went to Austin, Texas. I traveled uh, across to Los Angeles and lived there for a few years. And then I went up to northern Idaho to help a friend build a log house. He had bought some virgin forest there and we cut down trees and skinned the logs and built a house. In the process of building that house, I got a, a summons from another friend in Arizona, a little town called Greer up in the White Mountains. He invited me down to help him build a little ski area. So I left Idaho, went to Arizona and lived in Greer for about a year and a half. And we, we cleared a section of hill, put in a couple of ski runs and a little platter pole lift. And, and then uh, I came down to the valley, Scottsdale in particular, just mainly because uh, I had never been there and wanted to know what that was like. So I got to Scottsdale and found a job coaching gymnastics. And uh, that really changed the direction of my life. That was after seven years of, of kind of bouncing around and I got a job that I loved working with kids and coached gymnastics for the next 16 years. Very interesting. And uh, <clears throat> how did your students do, uh, the, the ones that you coached in gymnastics? Oh, well, I coached at several different gyms. And the last gym I was at, we had kids on the U.S. national team, elite-level gymnasts. And uh, I, was, I was a strength and conditioning coach primarily for those kids. And I did uh, what's called imagery uh, training, mental imagery so I would teach the kids how to how to focus. You know, if you watch a gymnastics meet on TV and they show the the kids just before they start their routine or make their mount, you'll see them with their eyes open usually going through mentally their entire routine before they mount the apparatus. And uh, that's what I would teach kids how to do, how to get that mental focus before they before they started their routine. But they they did really well. We had a lot of kids travel internationally in competition for the USA. That's interesting. You call it imagery training? Yeah, mental imagery. imagery. Yep. And, you know, in gymnastics, the skill level gets pretty high at the elite level, and the risk of injury is very great. And so the the kids that are learning these skills, they've, they've done all the lead-up skills, but so th their body is trained, but their mind needs to be trained as well. And and if you have any lapse in concentration during a routine, you uh, it, it could affect you the rest of your life. You could be paralyzed with a bad fall. So so that's an important part of elite level training, and that's what I did. Um, so I know that gymnastics wasn't your only teaching experience. Um, 
what what did you do besides gymnastics or after gymnastics? Well, my my ability to do some acrobatic skills uh, led me to theater, uh, sort of by chance, and I got involved in a show in Scottsdale, and I had a lot of fun, and and that kind of uh, added a whole new dimension to my life. So for many years, I was I was coaching gymnastics as a day job, and then doing theater at night in and around the Phoenix area. How'd you get wrapped into theater? Well, <laughs> I was I was doing some back handsprings in a backyard and a neighbor saw me who had uh, been assigned on a uh, to a production staff on a show in Scottsdale. And she saw me doing these back handsprings and she, uh, she asked me if I was interested in being in a play and I told her at first no, and but she was very persuasive, and I got, I got on the phone with uh, the director of this play that, that this other gal was working on, and I got talked into showing up at a rehearsal that I didn't audition for or anything, and I just had a really great time, and uh, and from there I I did begin to audition for plays, and for the next several years I was I was in five or six seven shows a year, and uh, getting a lot of experience on the stage and making lots of friends. What was your favorite role that you acted? I had the great opportunity many years later to portray uh, Captain Ahab in Moby Dick that was done in Scottsdale. And that was, that was really great fun. There a lot of, a lot of uh, deep introspection went into that role. And, and I had a, a great director and a great cast. And uh, yeah, that was probably probably the most uh, difficult and interesting, fun and enlightening experience I've ever had on stage was playing that role. Interesting. Um, I know that you didn't just stop at acting though. You went on to continue to produce um, plays as well. I did. Uh, well, you know, I told you that my acrobatics led to theater and theater led me to teaching high school drama at a charter school in Mesa, Arizona. And uh, I, I kind of stumbled into that job as well, but ended up teaching for 21 years and directed a play every semester. So I directed uh, 42 major Broadway style productions at Heritage Academy and talent nights. And, you know, <laughs> I was a busy guy. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, my very first year teaching there, I had replaced someone who was teaching drama classes but didn't really have a drama program. She was happy to give it up. She was a dance teacher. And when I got in there, I, uh, I realized right away that some of the senior high students in my classes were not real happy to see a little frumpled up old guy <laughs> replace the beautiful young uh, teacher that they had had before. So after a couple of weeks, I, I was trying to think to myself, what could I do to excite kids about drama? And I asked around and, and they had never really had a, a play production there. So I talked to the principal and uh, I said, I had this idea and I wanted to stage a, a full blown theater production in the, in the auditorium and he asked me about it and we chatted a little bit and he gave me the go ahead so 
So I did that, and the first play I chose was a, a comedy called Arsenic and Old Lace, and it was great fun. I, I had open auditions for the entire student body and got some really good kids and, and just had a really terrific production. We just ran one weekend and, uh, and sold out three shows. But the kids had so much fun that the next semester when, they, when I saw my signups for classes, my classes were all full. So I knew that it was, a, it was a good strategic move to make in order to build up the program and, uh, and keep people excited about, about theater at this little school. And two, two weeks into the second semester, it occurred to me, why couldn't we do a musical? So I went through the same process with the principal, and we chose a show called Guys and Dolls, and uh, had a great turnout for auditions, and had some really terrific singers, and and that show came off really well too. We had a small three-piece live orchestra, and it was really great. And that kind of that kind of started a tradition where we would do a non-musical in the fall and a musical every spring. And uh, so yeah, for 21 years, that's what we did, and. I never really thought that we would continue that after the first year, but it just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of seemed like the right thing to do. And uh, as the school grew in enrollment numbers, the talent pool got a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, and the shows got better. And we eventually built a little control booth in our auditorium that we didn't have before. And we computerized our lights and and sound and and we got better and better the kids were fantastic and many many kids over the years got scholarships to university uh, doing theater or musical theater and uh, there's a lot of kids also that did production design and costuming makeup so so it opened up a whole lot of opportunities for kids that didn't exist before and and it worked out really great had a great time doing it I also directed a lot of one-act plays. Uh, every year we would do a, a special night just for our honors drama kids. Those were seniors only who had been in drama for several years and had some experience and, and were able to learn at a little deeper level some of the stage performance techniques that were necessary if they wanted to go on and pursue that in college. So, so we would do a, an honors drama class and have a, a showcase that was three or four one-act plays interspersed with some individual scenes that the kids would put together. So, uh, yeah, so I was really busy. And at the same time, I was also helping coach some of our sports teams. So I knew basically everybody, every kid enrolled in the high school mm -hmm. and most of the junior high kids. Sounds like you're going to fit in really well here. <laughs> well, I like working with kids. I, I felt like working with young people kept me young, kept me thinking young. And because I was so physically involved with all of the activities at school, I was also the, the student council advisor. So I was at every student council function for my first 11 years there. And uh, I, I just love it. I, I, I do miss the kids. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your resources from the difference in resources, basically, from the time you got to the school and you started that very first play to the, the very last 42nd big production. When I started, 
our first play, got um, Arsenic and Old Lace, I asked where the costume shop at the school was, and they kind of chuckled and said, <laughs> what's a costume shop? <laughs> so so we uh, you know, built our own costumes for the first show, which wasn't too difficult. But then when we got to the musical and had – had a chorus with uh, large dance numbers, you know, in Guys and Dolls, there's scenes that take place at a at a nightclub in Cuba, in Havana. And so we had to build all those costumes. And after the second show, I realized we needed a place to put these. So we rented a refrigerated storage locker about a half mile away. And, and it was a, a little difficult because uh, we had to go to the storage locker every time, you know, for costumes and whatnot. That's how we started. But we just didn't have the facility at, at our school. So that's how we did it. And over the years, we got bigger and bigger storage lockers uh, until the school expanded and uh, into some other buildings um, across an alleyway in the back. And, and we were able to make one of those buildings into our storage facility. And by the time I left school with in retirement we had we had several thousand uh costumes thousands of props uh set pieces and they were all stored in that in that new building but yeah we went from zero to quite a bit <laughs> over 21 years excellent um <clears throat> so let's uh shift gears here let's talk a little bit about duncan what brought you to duncan the receptionist at Heritage Academy, my first eight years there, was Francie Harris, and she became a very good friend, and we we went through a lot of uh, trials together uh, just as friends, and she was just the most remarkable person. The students at school felt like she was, she was their extra mom, and whenever they would have problems at home, they'd come to her and and she was just, she was loved by everyone, and she became a really good friend. Her husband, Nelson, who was a, a contractor, a building contractor, uh, I got to know him as well. And when I bought a house a few years later, he, he helped do some remodeling on the house. So we became very close. Then when Francie left the school, we stayed in touch over the years. And uh, later on, they moved out to Duncan. And uh, when she first told me that on a phone call, I, I said, well, that's interesting. Is that in Arizona? And she told me kind of where it was. And she said, you'll have to come visit sometime. It's, it's really a nice place. So while I was teaching, I really never had time to travel much. Plus, raising kids uh, kept me busy. And then after I retired, one of the first things I wanted to do was come to Duncan. So a year and a half ago, I came out here and I I visited Nelson and Francie at their beautiful home and had a really great time. They took me up to the Marinci mine and and we kind of saw some of the local sites and I decided you know this wasn't such a bad place, kind of nice. Then uh, just last summer, summer of 20 with the COVID crisis going on, I when it first came up, I was in New York. And uh and I was quarantined in upstate New York for three weeks with some friends and knew that I had to get back to Arizona. So uh, I worked my way back and, and uh, picked up some things that I needed at my storage locker. And then I got a call from Francie 
somewhere along the way. And she invited me again to Duncan. And why don't you come stay here? She said, there's no COVID here, or at least mm -hmm. not a great presence of COVID in the, in the Duncan area. So I thought, okay. So I came and they have a, they have a little trailer next to their house. And I, I moved in there and, and with no real intention of staying for too long, I, uh, I kind of started planting roots and um, going to church in their home on Sundays and meeting people. And I, I began to fall in love with Duncan. So after six or eight weeks, uh, I had an opportunity to come up to rent a space, which I'll be moving into next week. And I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to commit to at least the next year here and probably a lot longer. Wonderful. Wonderful. So I got to ask you, we don't have a theater department or a drama club or anything. And I think we used to. Would there be any possibility of maybe bringing that back to this area with uh, Director Gary? Uh, yeah, I'd say there's a possibility, but it wouldn't be me in charge. I, I would love to help and assist somebody who had you know a little more youth and energy to uh, to put pr productions together, but I I'd love to lend a hand and mm -hmm. and it would be fun to to have a hand in that. But I I'm not sure I could commit to the responsibility of putting a production on. It, it, anybody who has not staged a theater production doesn't really understand <laughs> the amount of effort it that goes into it. it it's very time consuming and it's physically demanding and it's long hours. It's got to be, it's got to be a labor of love, and um, and I, I still do love theater, but I really uh, probably would be better suited to to be an assistant, or uh, you know, some kind of a um, an add on to the production staff. But I can help. I I I gained a lot of experience. I've. I, I directed 42 plays in high school, but I've also directed probably about 10 community theater productions, and I've performed in 75 or 80 shows. So I have a pretty extensive resume, especially for somebody who never did drama in high school. It was not my thing. You know, being a gymnast, I was an athlete, and in the school I went to in Ohio, we just didn't, didn't mix the arts and sports. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have an interest in theater until, until sports led me to theater. And uh, I realized the value and the fun in doing theater productions. So at this point in my, in my life, I'd love, love to help out, but probably not want to be the point, point person on a production. That makes sense. I just want to go see a play. <laughs> I haven't been to one since a long You know, there's a reason theater survived the movies back in the early 1900s when silent films were being made they said oh people are not, never going to want to go see a, a live show again and then and then talkies and and color and and as films got better and better and the the industry grew at each step along the way all the so-called experts said well this will be the death of live theater but it never happened and the reason it never happened i think is because it's a completely different experience. When you're in the theater watching live performance, anything can happen. There's a, there's a risk. It's like a high wire act where, where you know you expect 
that everything's going to go well and and the performers are going to be okay at the end but you never really know because things happen it's live it's real it's dynamic and and you you gain something from a live performance feeling the energy of the actors that you can't you can't get off of a screen and so i i i'm happy that theater has survived and then television came along and and that was a greater threat because they said well now people just stay in their homes and don't have to go out to even see a movie but movies lived and survived through that and so did live theater and it's uh it's very distressing when i hear about school districts who in their desire to cut back costs eliminate some of the fine arts and uh it's it's a really necessary part of the growth and development of our kids and it's so special that i i hope and pray that you know we can bring theater back to duncan and that uh, we can renew that great sense of adventure that theater brings to someone's life all right gary i understand that you've been skydiving yes i i had a job test driving cars in van nuys california for a few years and uh and i had a roommate in in the um up in the north valley and this is in Arizona and uh, California. And one night we were up late talking and kind of daring each other, uh, you know, in a, in a way that only silly knucklehead 24 year old kids can do. And, and uh, I, I dare you to do this, or I bet you wouldn't do this. And, and we challenged each other to go skydiving. And um, I told him I had a, an, a discomfort with heights and so he challenged me to go skydiving. Anyway, so the next morning we got up and we drove down to Lake Elsinore, California, where there was a skydiving school. And we did four hours of ground school and then climbed into a, a DC-3, an old tail dragon DC-3 that uh, had the door removed and all the seats taken out. We just sat on the floor of the fuselage. And we got up in the air. There were 12 of us in our group. And we had static lines. Nowadays, you do piggyback jumps, but from and you get to free fall from you know quite quite high, ten thousand feet or more, I think. Back then, it was a static line jump, which meant there was a thirty foot line attached from your ripcord to something uh, stationary inside the fuselage, so that when you exited the plane and you got thirty feet out, you're your parachute would automatically open. The ripcord would be pulled and you didn't have to think about it or do it. You just, you know, you just got, um, you got floated down by the guy who packed your chute. Well, in the plane, we got up to uh, 2,500 feet in altitude and the jump master looked at the 12 of us and he said, okay, we're going to go out in groups of three. And he's yelling because it's really loud. The engine's loud. There's no door. There's just an opening. And he said, and he pointed right to me. He said, and you're first. <laughs> I think he saw that there was fear in my eyes and he chose me to go first. So, so I stood up and there was two commands, which we had learned in ground school. The first one was stand in the door where you get your toes just over the edge and your hands are on either side of the door turned around backwards so you could pull yourself out. And they had taught us that you have to arch your back as you exit the plane so that you would drop quickly and not get killed by the tail of the plane. 
because DC-3s, when they cut the engines, don't slow down to, I think, uh, 120 miles an hour is a, as slow as they can go. And if you didn't arch your back, you wouldn't fall quickly enough and the tail might hit. So that's all I was thinking about. <laughs> so he says, stand in the door. And I stood in the door. And then the next command is just jump, where you where you pull yourself out, arch your back, and fall straight and let the, let the static line pull the ripcord. But right when he said jump, I decided to change my mind. And I turned to look at him to tell him that I wasn't going to go out, that I was just going to stay in the plane and go back, you know, back on the ground in the plane. But in that split second, he smiled and pushed me out the door. <laughs> I exited the plane, semi-conscious, and realized right away that this would probably be my last moment on the earth as a living, breathing human being. I had no consciousness of my parachute being open. In fact, I, I was completely oblivious to everything until I heard the voice of God. And the voice of God said, Gary, check your canopy. And I looked up and I thought, oh my goodness, God's talking to me. And they had taught us after your your parachute inflates, they call it the canopy. You check up, make sure the lines aren't tangled, make sure the parachute isn't torn or anything, because if it is, you do a cutaway and, and pull your reserve chute. So God was telling me to check my canopy, but I'm, I'm rather short and I couldn't reach. Oh, well, I checked the canopy. It was okay. And, and then God told me to, to grab the toggles. There's a little opening in a parachute and you can close and open that with toggles that are attached and that controls your descent. Um, you can turn left or right. And God was telling me to check my toggles. That was the next thing, but I couldn't reach them because I was so short. My arms are short. And, and I, and I was trying to get up there, but you know, when you're on the ground and you want to jump, you kick your legs. Well, I started kicking my legs and reaching up and I could touch the toggle, but I couldn't grab it. Then I heard God laughing at me. <laughs> And I realized it wasn't God at all. There was a two-way radio on top of my reserve chute. And there was a guy on the ground with binoculars, you know, checking all the newbies going out of the plane. Anyway, so then he said, just, you know, grab the line, pull yourself up. So I did and grab the toggles and everything was okay after that. I got on onto the uh, ground safely. In fact, of the 12 who were in my group, I landed closest to the, to the X marks, the spot target on the ground. But uh, yeah, the guys in the truck down on the ground had a good laugh at my expense. I also learned after I got on the ground that if I wanted to pay $35, which was a substantial amount of money back then, I could have an eight by 10 of the moment I left the plane oh my gosh. because they didn't tell us this ahead of time, but there was a guy hanging out of a window right behind the pilot taking a picture of everybody right when they exited. And of course, you know, when you get on the ground, your, your adrenaline is really high. Uh -huh. And so, of course, everybody buys. And I, so I have an eight by 10 of, of myself in that very moment with the fear of death on my face. <laughs> it's pretty fun to look at. That's a funny story. So you use a lot of aeronautical terms, fuselage. And uh, are you familiar with the... Uh, flying? N not really. I've, I've never flown. I never got a pilot's license, but I always dreamed about it. My dad had a pilot's license when he was young. And my, my favorite place to go when I visit Dayton, Ohio is the Air Force uh, 
museum, which is, I, I, I've been in museums all over the world and it, it's my favorite. It's, it's the hugest <laughs> museum. Have you been there? I have. Oh, it's fantastic. It's so great. I was there when President Nixon opened it and dedicated it. And uh, yeah, I go every, every time I go back, I just, I love flight. You know, the Wright brothers are from Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Wright brothers are, are heroes of mine. I've, I recently read a book by David McCulloch, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author, just called The Wright Brothers, but it's a fantastic book and tells their entire story. These two guys that never finished high school and yet changed the world with their curiosity and their determination. And uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable, amazing story of what they did. They invented flight, really, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, with, with very little help. Yeah. And lots of crash landings. Yeah. Crash landings. And, and they were in competition with, with uh, the Smithsonian, which had the government backing. The government was trying to, to figure out how to, to put a controlled heavier than aircraft in the, in the air and to keep it sustained. And they had, they had unlimited funding. The Wright brothers had nothing except their bike shop, the, the, proceeds from their bike shop back in Dayton. And yet, and yet they did it. It's a great story. It is. In the course of you telling me things, I find out even more crazy, awesome things. Like you were a car test driver. Yeah. How test, did... It was, it, we tested brakes. Uh, Delco. Okay. So I was managing a Shakey's pizza parlor <laughs> in Southern California, Manhattan beach. And um, my best buddy in high school, his dad worked for Delco. He was a big shop with a, you know, it's a General Motors company. Mm -hmm. And he called me up one day, you know, back then it was all landlines. He called me up one day and said, hey, I'm in town. Now. You want to go to lunch? And I said, sure. And so he took me to lunch and over lunch, he said, you know, he asked me a lot of questions about my job and I was managing a pizza parlor and I had done that worked my way through, you know, high school, um, working at restaurants. And I got this assistant manager job at a pizza parlor. And so I was comfortable doing it, not making much money. And, and I told him all this and he said, well, how would you like to make twice that driving cars? So I was curious. And, uh, he said that the Van Nuys Proving Grounds in the San Fernando Valley, uh, was looking for drivers. And he said, he could get me on. And so I kind of jumped at that. That sounded like a cool thing to do. I was still pretty young in my 20s. And so that's what I did. And for the next two years, I I tested tested brakes on surface streets. The uh, company didn't want people talking about it because they don't want you to know that they're actually testing brakes on surface streets, but, but they're prototype brakes in prototype cars. So we got to drive some really interesting cars that were unlabeled. They didn't have any markings on them. And every now and then at a stoplight, somebody would roll the window down and say, hey, what is that? Mm -hmm. But we, we couldn't really tell them because, uh, you know, they weren't on the market yet and they were still in experimental phases. But we, uh, yeah, the test, test route was 203 miles in and around the L.A. area that included uh, heavy traffic down in, in Watts. We drove through Watts. We drove 
on the freeway, what was called a cool down cycle, where we'd stay off our brakes for 15 or 20 minutes on the freeway. But we also drove up PCH through Malibu and across Mulholland Drive, the top of the Hollywood Hills. It, it was it was fantastic. Eight hours of just being on the road every day and testing brakes. We had gauges in the car, temperature gauges, one for each wheel. And then we also had deceleration and line pressure gauges. And we would do little tests in, in, um, in neighborhoods where we could pull over and record uh, the data. But uh, that's what we did. And, and I, I loved it. It was great fun. And that's how I that's how I met my my buddy Greg who who bought land up in Idaho. He took his family up there on vacation, bought 15 acres of land, came back and gave two weeks notice and said, "Gary, you want to go with me? I'm gonna Homestead. gonna gonna build a house." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I went up there and I quit my job there, and that's how I got to Idaho. Interesting. And what'd you do in Idaho? Well, all I did was live on his property. He, he took a 32 foot a trailer that he and his wife and two kids lived in. I took a little eight foot trailer with no running water, no electricity and slept in that stayed through the winter, which was a pretty harsh winter that year. And, uh, we, we cut down trees and skinned logs and, and started working on building a home for him. I, I didn't stay until, uh, you know, for the completion of the home because, uh, I got called, you know, to come down to Arizona and help in, in um, building a ski resort, but but the time I was there, we worked all day long, and and uh, it was really fun. It was it got very snowy, so there were days we couldn't work, and we would just uh, cut firewood. We cut we we stacked forty cords of firewood while I was up there, and and that's how we kept warm. <laughs> do you have any uh, Do you have any interesting hobbies? Uh, well, I like to travel, and since I retired, I've been on the road. I my my dad was in failing health, and that's why I retired. I really was going to work another year or two, but I didn't think he would last uh, that long. And he was in a, an assisted care facility in Ohio, so I retired. And my son and I, who was he was uh, sixteen at the time, seventeen, I think he was seventeen. We did a little cross country road trip. We stopped at at interesting places like Mount Rushmore and and we went to Chicago and spent a few days there traveling around on on segways touring the city that was really fun and we spent we spent well Dawson my son spent two weeks there with him and then had to get back he had to get back for his senior year of high school but I stayed another month or so and my dad passed away and and we held the funeral for him and uh and I didn't have a place to go back to. I had moved out of my home in Mesa, my home that I was renting, and put everything in storage. And And it occurred to me at that point that maybe I could just travel for a while. So, so from there, I went to see some friends in Michigan, stayed there for a while. And then I went to New York and visited my daughter and then some other friends in upstate New York. And then I went to California for a while and stayed at a little cabin up in uh, uh, an area north of San Francisco, about 200 miles north of San Francisco. And uh, yeah, I just, I, so I still don't have a home until I came to Duncan. This is where I'm going to plant my first roots in the last few years. I've been living mostly out of my car. Excellent. 
but you could have picked a better spot. <laughs> I love it here. And I'm tired of living out of my car, so it's great. And I've met some great people like you, Jared. Well, I'm glad I met you too, Gary. Thank you so much for coming in and talking with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. Uh, my my kids, whenever I start telling a story that's from my past, they always tell me, write those things down, Dad. So so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm starting a book now. I've I've written about 130 pages into a, a memoir that I'm going to finish while I'm here in Duncan. Wonderful. Um, if you guys see Gary walking around town, make sure to say hi. Give him a high five. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jared. Before you go, I have one last thing to say. I'm looking for new and interesting people to interview for my podcast, and I'm always entertaining new podcast ideas. So if you know somebody with a great story or they're just the most interesting person in the world and I have to meet them, get in contact with me via email. It's jared.longhorn at gmail.com. J-A-R-E-D dot longhorn at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.